We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 108. This is a very special episode because I, if you haven't already guessed, love equestrian media. And today we are talking to not only one, but two equestrian media ladies because long ago, a few months back, I did an equestrian podcast giveaway where the winner of the giveaway got to come on and co-host an episode with me with the guest of their choice. So that is today's episode. So our giveaway winner was Tori Billis, who is a show jumper, a portrait artist, She has her own company called Tori Billis Art, and she's also the account manager at Jump Media LLC. Jump Media is a huge, amazing equestrian media group. The owner, Jen Wood, was actually on the podcast episode 69, if you want to check it out. But Tori and I really wanted this guest on because she is a huge role model when it comes to equestrian media. She has done so much commentary and so many reports that she just is an absolute wealth of knowledge when it comes to our sport. She works with the FEI World Cup team, following all of the top show jumpers around the world to learn more from them, talk to them, hear their story, hear their reaction to some wins and maybe some challenging moments of their career, and just how they navigate through that to the end goal of the World Cup finals. She has such a cool life, and I wanted to hear so much more about how she got to where she is today, so I'm so pumped that she is on today's episode. Episode. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Katie Stazak. So I would love to hear your story as a fellow equestrian who loves to talk and talk about the sport <laughs> and talk about all different areas. I feel like we're going to have a lot to talk about. So we'd first love to hear about how you first got into the equestrian industry and what that looked like. So my mom actually introduced me to the sport. I was really young. She actually rode when she was a teenager, nothing formal at all. She would go on trail rides with a friend of hers from school and she just fell in love with horses. She always wanted to have a horse and get involved and it really just wasn't real realistic for her with where she was. She lived in, in Philadelphia, just outside the city. They didn't have space or really, they just weren't able to get her to horses. But as she became an adult and moved to Florida, I was just, just about three when we moved to Florida. She was just getting to know the area. She saw a sign for a horse show, took a left down the street, introduced me to horses and and kind of the rest is, is history. I was hooked from the start. I started at a really small local barn, which I'm really grateful for. Uh, we learned how to ride in bicycle helmets. But from the get-go at four years old, I was tacking up a horse. Obviously, I couldn't reach you know, the saddle and things like that. But I learned everything. And they just had us involved every step of the way, which I really loved. And fell in love with kind of the horsemanship aspect of the sport. I'm really hands-on to this day with my horses. I don't have a groom. I do everything myself, a little bit of that control freak nature totally (laughs) coming in. But from there, I was fortunate to just, as I went, meet people that were, you know, a bit more experienced in the industry. And I was able to get to the right people that, you know, taught me more about the sport and, and get into, you know, more of the show circuit and the higher level. I actually started 
um, that first barn was Western. So we did Western pleasure and trail and things. I did that for probably three years. I was like six six or so. And my mom wanted me to do something that was a little bit, I guess, more exciting for her. And so we, you know, I found a barn to switch to English writing and the hunter jumper discipline and jumping, taking lessons. And, and again, just kept meeting people to kind of take that next step and being so close to Wellington was just a blessing and was able to learn and grow. I started riding with Alan Karotkin and Susan Cicinardi at Castlewood Farm when awesome. I was about 14. And they took took me to all the goals I wanted to achieve. And I'm super grateful I still ride with them to this day. So I've been oh, with them nice. 14 years now. We um, just bought one of Alan's horses like last week officially. So <laughs> which one did you take? We have a Rebo. Oh my gosh. Oh, so you bought Harry. Yes, Fabulous. we did. You yeah, we le- we leased him year. right up until last week. And we're like, we can't get rid of Reba. We love him so much. <laughs> he is such a phenomenal horse. Yeah. Um, and gosh, the girls, they, they ride him great. It's been, it's been fun to watch them. But it's, Alan, Alan's a class act. He's taught me so much about the entire industry, not just what happens in the saddle. And we do a bit of work together now. And so it's been a fun journey. Awesome. Amazing. So as you made made your transition into the hunter jumper world, at what point were you like, okay, like horses have to be my thing. Like that's definitely what I'm passionate about and potentially want to have like a career in. At At what point in your life did that kind of come into play? Well, from a really young age, I knew I wanted to be involved with horses, but I also made a bit of a conscious decision as well as I got a little bit older and had to make those decisions that I didn't want to ride professionally. I didn't want to ride for a living. I love the sport and wanted to be involved in some way. I've been really fortunate to be able to do that and morph all of these different passions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't want riding to be an obligation. I could I could not sell a horse if my life depended on it. I would keep everyone and <laughs> run out of money. Yeah. And I get very attached. So, you know, that that decision came in my teens, but I really wanted riding to be just the outlet, something I can do to, even though I'm involved with it in work, I wanted it to still be something, this is fun for me and this mm-hmm. is an outlet and this is this is what I can go and do to take my mind off of, you know, the professional pressure uh, of a job. Yeah. So as you were riding as a junior and kind of finishing out those years and, you know, transition into amateur life, what did, what did your life look like as far as what you were doing with your education and then eventually your career at that point in time? I am a self-proclaimed nerd, very proud. (laughs) I really wanted to go to college and I was really serious about my academics. I went to University of Miami. I kept riding during that time, but I didn't really show. I did a bit of catch riding and just flatting horses at home, helping people with different horses. And I studied broadcast journalism. My dad um, was a professional hockey player many, many moons ago. And I'm an only child. So I grew up in a very sports-oriented household. We love to watch sports together. And naturally, we would debate sports together. So I wanted to get involved in sports broadcasting of some kind. So I was really fortunate at UM that I could go. I was on air right away my freshman year talking about sports, covering Miami football games and all of that really tremendous sports culture that they have down there in Coral Gables. It was an amazing experience. I just was able to be so hands-on and get a lot of kind of reps on air during that time. I really wanted to find a way to combine that with horses because I could talk about horses to no end. You ask any horse person, you just say, tell me about your horse. And 
you know, you could have a whole podcast, which is just people talking about their horses. So that that was me. But I loved the science and, and data and numbers and statistics and breaking things down concept that you could bring into being a sports analyst. I was really fortunate. I went to Gulfstream Park, the racetrack down in Hollandale for kind of a, a photo day. I love to take pictures and, you know, it was a little bit of a hobby and I would do it at the horse shows while I was waiting to show and things like that. And I loved horse racing because I loved the numbers game of predicting and, and all of that and breaking down odds and finding a good bet and all of those things. And when I was there, I asked them if they had any internships and they said, they didn't really formally offer them. They didn't have a program per se, but if I was interested, they would give me a trial. So I got an internship with them that day that I did in college during my senior year. And I was writing in the racing office, covering you know the big stakes races. And then I would go out and be a reporter, interview the trainers, do packages and things. And at the very end of my internship, they said, we know you're studying broadcast. Do you want to hop on the handicapping show that's on a national simulcast on a quieter day at the racetrack. And I said, absolutely, I jumped on it, jumped at the opportunity. And I just had an absolute ball. And I got off of air that day. And the racing manager said, can you do that again? (laughs) And they hired me on the spot. And I worked the day after I graduated. Wow. And it was a really amazing experience because I was on air a minimum of 10 times a day completely ad-libbing, no scripts, yep. breaking down the races, interviewing trainers. And it just got me so much on-air experience that really set me up. After a while, I really missed my sport. I missed show jumping. I missed the hunter-jumper world. And I missed riding because at the track, you're up at the crack of dawn to watch the works. Then you're at the races all day and they run until about 7 p.m. And then you're in Hollandale and it's an hour back to Wellington and it's dark by the time you're back. Mm. And their dark days are Mondays when, you know, the, the rest of the industry is also on pause. We really didn't get to ride all that much. Wow. So after a couple of years, I started doing some more freelance writing within the industry and it turned into a commentary opportunity. So I commentated at Traverse City and it was a very, it was a bit of deja vu because I got off of air and Dave Orlando that runs ShowNet now worked with Clip My Horse came up to me and said, can you do that again? And (laughs) I went to the Hampton Classic after that and it just morphed from there. My big kind of break per se was at the American Gold Cup. Scariest thing I've ever done. I went up to the the Car Hughes and NBC Sports production team and I wow. handed them my resume and I just said, Hi, I'm Katie. You've never heard of me, but I know what's happening here. And if I can do anything, even if that's get you lunch or show you where anything is, please let me know. It's my it's my dream to work with you. And they came back an hour later and said, Will you be our reporter? <laughs> and I reported for them at that at that Gold Cup. And the next time I got promoted to commentator, and then after that, they signed me to my my contract. And that that was how it all got going. Oh my gosh, you gave me goosebumps, Katie. <laughs> That's so cool! Wow, oh, what an amazing story. I mean. Obviously, there was probably a, the transition of moving you know, away from the racetrack, wanting to go back into the hunter-jumper world. Walk me through, are there, is there, are there any 
um, specific moments or memories that stick out in your head of those first few times that you were commentating or doing things at specific venues that really just you know stick out as being extra special or memorable? There are a lot. Um, <laughs> I have to say one of the one of the most meaningful to me was commentating the World Cups at the Royal as well as uh, the Washington International Horse Show mm-hmm. um, because they were both at hockey venues. So where the Capitals play for Washington, I was in the hockey broadcast booth and my dad played in that arena many years ago. Wow. Um, and that was exceptionally meaningful to me. So that that was a moment that gave me goosebumps. It was the same thing in Toronto. That's a hockey arena at one point for the American Hockey League team. So the farm team or the minor league arena for hockey and for the Toronto Marlies. And my, my dad was there as well. So those those were really meaningful moments. I have to say one of my first World Cups at Gold Cup was when Kent Farrington did that tremendous dismount after his winning jump off with Gazelle. That was a pretty cool moment. There have really been uh, a lot of them. I also, I do remember going to Lausanne, Switzerland for both the FBI Sports Forum that I moderated and the first Longing Masters of Lausanne that they had last year. And just sitting up in the booth was really a moment where I was like, my word, like, how did I get here? I started riding in a bicycle helmet, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, type of moments. And I'm, I really, I love to, I do some work with high school kids, helping them with their college applications and just career guidance a little bit. And my favorite thing to tell people is just no matter what anyone says, there's absolutely no set path. If mm-hmm. it's something you want, just keep going, keep saying yes to opportunities and keep moving because right. there's no set path and you never know where something's going to take you. A door is going to open, close, move you somewhere. And as long as you keep moving and you don't give up, um, it's amazing what you can accomplish. It might even be things that you didn't even know were possible or that that opportunity existed. And that was definitely true for me. And I think that's been one of the coolest things about this podcast. And I think for maybe you and I growing up, it seemed like it was a lot more closed-minded as far as what you could be as a professional in this sport. It was like you could either be a trainer or a rider. And that was it. And, and I, I mean, obviously a lot of these positions were there. They just weren't talked about all that much or showcased all that much. And so it's so cool now today, there are so many different avenues that you can work with in the industry and, and really essentially whatever you are gifted at or enjoy, there's an equestrian related job out there for you. And so it's really cool to see how you can really find a job that you what something that I always advocate for is that, you know, truly love that doesn't feel like work because it's something that, you know, so aligns with, with what you're passionate about. So I think that that's really cool. And you totally hit the nail on the head as far as if you just keep going for it and working hard and staying consistent, those opportunities are going to show up eventually. A million percent. I couldn't agree more. And and when I first started at the racetrack, there really wasn't a big commentary industry, you know, like it is now. There's all these live streams, especially now. They're becoming more and more popular since we can't expect theaters at shows. And you see everyone refocusing their digital efforts. But in the beginning, there there really wasn't. I didn't know that there was that opportunity. So I thought, okay, racehorses, that's horses. I'll be around horses and I can talk about horses. Yeah. And it was great. And it no doubt shaped me and, you know, 
it gave me so many opportunities and the experience that helps me today. And now I'm just so comfortable with, with the camera and with commentary and being on air. But definitely when I started, I didn't know that that was even existed. Totally. Pre-COVID, what did your schedule look like? You know, like on any given week, whether you are, you know, trying to squeeze in some riding or showing yourself with work and then, and then like travel, how often were you traveling? That's, that's a great predicator now. It's pre-COVID. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> very different now, but I was traveling about 25 weeks a year. The busy season was the fall for World Cup season. So pretty much I'd be three or four days at home and three or four days on the road. And we just, it was just a cycle to go to those legs all, well, there are 14 legs as of last season for World Cup, but we went to 12 of them because two overlapped. So we were on the, on the road all the time. I would be squeezing my rides in, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, Thursday, and maybe an early Friday morning before catching a flight to whatever World Cup event that that was going to be. We would always get to the show, get our bearings, have our production plan, get a lay of the land, figure out standings, who we're going to interview. We would have our, our main features, our athlete in focus, as well as our bridal challenge, which was more of a fun video where we would actually have riders put together a bridal on camera as fast as possible while answering ridiculous questions about themselves. <laughs> and that was a, a pretty, pretty entertaining package that we did last season. And then we would do our preview pieces, talking to the course designers, getting, you know, looking over course plans, doing our notes for, you know, all the competitors after the draw, and then all of our production meetings. And then we'd have World Cup Day. And then we would do our, our wrap-up news piece and winning rounds interviews and things like that. And that was our routine throughout the fall. A lot more went into a day, but that that's about it in a nutshell. But a lot of running around, we're always on our feet or, you know, studying, taking notes. And uh, it's really, is a dream job for me. I want to take a minute and talk to you about our sponsor today because I love this brand and they are doing some amazing things for the industry. Groom Tote is the only customizable gift box for you and your horse. It's customized by you, for you, and for your and your horse's unique needs. Subscribe to their emails because there are going to be some exciting enhancements coming your way announced early 2021. So spoil yourself because you deserve it and your horse while giving back. Groom Tote partnered with Amberly Snyder Freedom Foundation to give back to those in need so you can shop with a purpose. Head over to groomtote.com for information and to grab yourself a box, or it would be an amazing trainer gift or a barn friend gift. So jump on it while supplies last. That's groomtote.com, G-R-O-O-M-T-O-T-E.com. Thank you so much, Groom Tote. All right, let's get back to the episode. How much of the job are you conducting an actual interview? And then what kind of makes up the rest of the day? I know you were saying you were, you know, like studying and taking notes. And I'm sure, I'm sure times have changed from your initial commentating experiences and interviewing experiences where now you are doing some more, you know, interview prep and having questions and stuff ready or thought about. What what does that look like for you? And how much are you involved in the behind the scenes or additional aspects to the media team putting together content? We have an 
amazing team on the World Cup team. We have Adam Crummer, he's my co-host, and he had his impact media team on the grounds that would do the digital kind of content pieces that we would make for World Cup. So nice. the the preview, the news pieces, the athlete-focused bridal challenge, his team would shoot and edit those. And I would help from uh, a producing standpoint. So we'd figure out what riders were on site mm-hmm. and who was doing well. So who we wanted to feature, who we yeah. hadn't featured already. So selecting the riders, I'd reach out to them, schedule interviews, and we'd go down and, you know, I'd have my, my prep in terms of what I wanted to ask. We do interviews with the riders and get footage of them, you know, with the horses, whether they're packing out or training or just loving on the horses, taking them out for a graze or a hand walk type of thing. On actual World Cup Day, it's pretty hectic because certain events I'll be commentating and reporting. Mm-hmm. So I will have all my notes. I'll go, I'll walk the course while I'm on course. I've either got a headpiece in or I'm on the phone with our team in the truck and I, I'm identifying riders that they need B-roll of while they're walking the course. So I'll be mm-hmm. walking and I'll, you know, I'll get someone in my ear. Hey, do you see McLean? Do you see BZ? You know, do you see Carl Cook? Do you, do, where are these riders? So I'm mapping them out and telling them they're, they're by Fancy, you know, they're by the Blue Oxer, they're by the Longine Triple, um, yeah. you know, the Longine Clock, all of those things. So pointing them out, walking the course, taking notes on the course, running back, hopping on air for the broadcast. And then in the jump off, we keep an eye on how things are going. So as the last rider goes in, they have a rail and someone's leading. I will run out of the booth to meet the winner and get them as soon as they jump off their horse. So, and then I'll leave my co-host to finish things on air so I can get that interview. If it's a little more coming down to the wire and the last horse and the last horse is going to take the win, I'll stay on air until kind of as long as I can. And then I'll hop out and run it and, and go get that interview. After that interview, I will normally do another for our post edited piece. And then I'm running a bit again to the press conference because I also do the press for FEI. So then I'm going to the press conference, jotting notes from that, and then writing FEI's press release that goes out everywhere of the recap of the event and distributing that through their system. So sometimes I'll actually be commentating, reporting, writing their press, and also social media posting from that event. Since you've done it for a minute, is it stressful to you or is it exci- like exciting and exhilarating? Oh, definitely exciting and exhilarating. Yeah. For sure in the beginning, there was stress because yeah. I needed to get a workflow and how am I how am I going to manage this? How am I going totally. to get this done on deadline and get everything accomplished and not look like I'm harried and, and running, you know, a million miles a, a minute? But for sure now it's it's exhilarating and you have a good workflow and mm-hmm. when you have the the best team ever that is just they're your your role models, they're your mentors, they're your friends. It just makes it uh, just a great experience. Awesome. What would you say are your favorite parts? and maybe the most challenging parts of working with equestrian athletes? Oh, gosh. Favorite parts is really, I guess, getting, you get to talk about horses. And I feel like every time I'm talking to anyone, I'm learning something as well that I can take back and apply to myself in my mm-hmm. own writing. So I love just being able to talk shop. But when you know I'm doing an interview, obviously, there's a formality of it, and I have the questions. But at the same time, I feel like it's just, I'm always out, you know, as you are when you're doing you know, just to have a chat and a discussion and you learn so much in that time. So that's always 
I think been my favorite part is you really get to know everyone um, and see the hard work they put in and you learn just so much simply from watching and listening. I'm really only guiding the conversation Mm -hmm. um, and really showcasing the the great things that they're doing. I love being able to share um, our sport with new people. That's a big passion of mine. The most difficult thing with riders is, is really, I guess, the scheduling, you know, we're, we're all really big multitaskers and there's always somewhere we got to be. And some writers really understand, you know, the media and how it works and why we need the interviews and how deadlines work and all these things. And they're super receptive, but others, you know, are, and are really busy. And sometimes, again, my least favorite thing to do is having to chase the writer down for an interview because I feel terrible having to do it. I know they're busy and it's just not, not a strength of mine to be that persistent person. I can actually tend to be quiet and be like, okay, uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> sure, I can wait, please. But uh, for the most part, especially now, everyone kind of understands and, you know, everyone's, you know, very kind and, and generous with their time. But sometimes with, with schedules, especially in, in the winter and in past years with Palm Beach Masters and they have to run across the street to West for a class, getting those interviews, uh, there's really precious time <laughs> during the winter season. Amazing. That is so cool. Well, a little while back, we had a equestrian podcast giveaway and our winner would come on with me and co-interview the guest of their choice. So we have Tori Billis here, who's also works in media and she wanted to chat with you. So she is on now, Tori, if you want to hop on and ask whatever questions you want. Thank you, Bethany. I'm happy to be here. Take it away, Tori. Alrighty. Katie, thank you so much for letting me be a part of this. Um, oh my gosh, I, I'm thrilled and flattered. So, <laughs> And I also just have to say very proud because I know we've chatted in the past and it's great to see you flourishing and doing so well and, and doing a lot of the things that I know that we've talked about in the past that you wanted to do. So that makes me really just really happy and proud. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> well, I had just a few questions for you and the way that your career has taken off. I'm just super impressed. You know, like you said, you've been a part of the horse world since you were really young. But as far as like getting to know the very top of the sport, what and who has really helped you get to know that level so you can approach it and talk about it as an expert? So I have to say probably my greatest mentor in the sport would be Connie Sawyer. She um, does the commercial work at the FBI and really took me under her wing when I first started. She believed in me and she's just become an incredible friend, mentor, teammate. I can't say enough about her. She's a bit of my hero because she has that toughness and that gumption as well that I a little bit lack and I'm still trying to learn from. But she really just gave me confidence in myself and introduced me to so many people within the industry, as well as, you know, on the kind of administrative and commercial and broadcast and and all the business side of the sport and all the opportunities and all the knowledge that she's given me have really, really shaped. In terms of the horse aspect, again, would 
probably be my, my trainer, Alan Krakin. He was always very big on, he knew that I was a sponge for knowledge. So I could ask him anything and we would just, you know, again, talk shop and all the details. And I would watch something, just ask him the details of it all growing up. And as I studied that and just watched so many lessons and, and grew through my own writing, I just, you know, I knew what he was going to say. And, you know, it just grew from there and asking those questions and practicing that and watching again so many others listening to other commentators you you just learn so much in this industry by by listening and watching just like any writer that you know I always would recommend anybody to go to the schooling area more so than the ring to watch what the writers are doing as they warm up and how they're working through maybe a problem or a horse that is a little bit fresh or a horse that is you know, struggling with one aspect, you know, that might be proved to be a weakness with how the course is set. Also talking to course designers is the greatest thing. They are just have a wealth of knowledge, especially someone like Alan Wade, who's just a genius, but you learn a lot from them too. But you've learned so much from all the different people you've gotten to know in the sport. Yeah, um, that would uh, be uh, the tip of the iceberg. (laughs) So I'm sure you've picked up on the differences between mainstream sports broadcasting and equestrian sports broadcasting. And, you know, there are quite a few. It's a very different world. But as the sport and technology grows, what is your hope for equestrian sport broadcasting in the future? When you watch Major League Baseball, they can tell you not only an ERA, but the ERA when they're facing a left-handed batter on a Tuesday at five o'clock in the afternoon and the odds of them hitting the baseball. It's just incredible the amount of data. And what I think can really benefit our sport is if we have more data for people that maybe aren't horse people can better understand. At the racetrack, I think they get a lot of new fans because anyone can go to the track and pick up the form and say, oh, this horse is, you know, four to one. Well, okay, it's got some pretty decent odds. You know, maybe I'll, I'll bet on that. You know, this horse is the favorite. He's two to five. That's an easy, you know, clearly a heavy favorite. I'm going to give myself good odds of winning today. And then you feel like you're involved. And when that horse crosses the finish line in front, it's like, oh, wow, this is fun. I'm not saying gambling is the answer, but I think if we can have some sort of data in terms of, clear round percentage or how many, you know, five-star experience, you know, those sort of numbers, basic numbers, not just a world ranking, especially when you're seeing someone that's ranked like 2000. How does it compare to that, to this field? What is this person's clear round percentage? How many years have they been competing at the five-star level? Number of championships, number of wins in the past year, just small things that someone can look at a field and maybe have an idea of who they would want to win or who they think might win if they don't know who the people are to begin with. And it's just something that can increase a little bit of involvement and get people, you know, just started and bring them back again because they can feel a little bit involved and not so separated from the sport. Oh, that's so interesting. I never really thought about that. That's that's a passion project of mine. I would love to see that. um, I'm sure the people are out there. There are probably so many horse people that are interested in big data that could probably help those two worlds merge. (laughs) Sometimes I get a little bit of the bug eyes like, okay, Katie, you you go do that. But I I would love to see that. (laughs) My last question is something you've addressed to me in the past, but You've really created your own special niche in this industry and in a way that I don't think has been done before, which I really admire. And I think a lot of people do. So for anyone who may be trying to find their place in the horse world, what is your advice for them as they think about their strengths and how they could play 
a role in this industry? I would definitely say go out there, network, and try things. Uh, Definitely don't pigeonhole yourself. Don't say, well, I want to do this. Definitely say yes to every opportunity, especially in an age of COVID. I'm not commentating, you know, much at all this year. So I've had to rework my business and Katie stays at media is really thriving. I have a boutique media agency. So I work with a few clients and we work on increasing their exposure in the sports, doing dynamic and creative content. You know, of course, your press releases and your show to social media and things like that. But videos and really framing every press release as a story and storytelling. You know, you always have to adapt. Our industry is adapting and always changing, but so too is media. It's one of, you know, the fastest growing industries, you know, radio turns to TV, which turns to live streaming and you're digital. It's going to keep evolving. So you just can't limit yourself. You have to evolve, do as many things as possible. And there have definitely been times where I have taken on too much and said yes to too too many things and felt panicked and they couldn't get it done, you know, feeling like I couldn't, but you just kind of keep, again, keep going. Awesome. Tori, those are such good questions. I'm going to need you to like come on here more often and help me out. (laughs) That was amazing. Anytime. (laughs) Katie, my last question for you is if there's an area of the industry that you are particularly passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk a lot about. Wow, that that's a great question. And I love, I have to say, I love listening to your podcast for this question to hear all the really diverse answers from people. And I think it's it's a really great way to get conversations started within the industry. There are definitely a few for me, and I'm gonna try to keep them short. One is, and I know you actually posted about this the other day about rescue horses. And my first horse was a rescue horse. He was four years old, recently gelded, abandoned and neglected. We found my my mom found him and rescued him, brought him into our family. And he never did a single show for me. We learned when getting to the right people that, you know, he wasn't cut out for the show ring, but he taught me more than any other horse in my lifetime. And I was blessed to have him from the time I was in kindergarten. And we were a terrible match of, you know, a six-year-old riding a four-year-old to, you know, we, we just lost him in July. And he was 26 and honestly didn't know what like without him. But my, my point is that you can learn from any type of horse. And I think people are, you know, in our sport, there are all these magnificent horses, but anyone that doesn't have access to the sport to know that you can learn from any type of horse. And just because you don't have a horse that's showing at a high level, doesn't mean you're not a horse of a lifetime because he, without question, is my course of a lifetime, mostly because he was with me for most of my lifetime. But he was my my best friend on planet Earth. And I just, everything about horsemanship that I could have learned, I learned from him. So that, that's the big thing, because in, in this industry, we so often compare ourselves to others and what others have and the horses and what everyone is doing. And really it's the little moments and you can learn so much from just any horse. And I'm super fortunate. You know, I actually, I saved 10 years. I haven't had my own show horse since I was a junior rider and I just got my own show horse again. And ironic enough, he, he showed up 
the day that Silvery, my my rescue horse, passed away. And I have to say, as corny and crazy um, as it sounds, I I know he was is still taking care of me, and he sent me, you know, a pretty amazing horse before he left. And I I say, okay, you you you're still taking good care of me. You did good because this horse is, I mean the most incredible horse I think I'll probably ever sit on that I can actually own this horse is, is amazing. But just to not, you know, not compare yourself to others. And we should really think about just every horse you can learn from. It's not always about having to compete at the highest levels of the sport. My biggest goal is to always in, increase the mainstream exposure of our sport. Mm-hmm. We might not ever reach the likes of hockey or the NFL you know, or the MBA or what show jumping is in Europe. But if we can bring it an inch closer, that's a win. So I hope we can work on promoting and seeing the value in media, in our sport, in promoting and making it accessible. And I know conversations about that are happening. So I hope, just hope that they do continue because I would just love to see more kids that start out riding in bicycle helmets and have never heard of Wellington to be able to commentate a five-star horse show. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's an amazing point. And it really, when you, when you try to think of how to be practical about that and, and move the needle in that way, I think a lot of it comes from looking within and within the current community and industry. And like you were saying, doing as much as we possibly can to avoid that comparison game and just focusing yeah. in on your own riding and your own goals and your own animals and how you can make the most of your situation. It's not about a blue ribbon. It's if you can go in the ring and you can have a good productive round and you come away with a good experience for you and your horse, that is a win mm-hmm. um, every time. Absolutely. And if it's not an amazing experience, it still is a learning experience. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, we all definitely need that reminder. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Amazing. Well, Katie, thank you so much for taking the time. You have so much to offer in the industry and I love watching you grow and navigate that life. I think it's amazing what you're doing and I wish you all the best. And Tori as well, thank you so much for coming on and look forward to having more more chats with both of you about all things equestrian media. Uh, Same to you both. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.